right, good morning, Hillcrest family. I want to thank each of you that's here with us gathered, those of us gathered over our Spanish Trail campus. We thank you for joining us in worship this morning, and if you're catching us online, welcome to you as well. We're going to continue our our walk through the minor prophets this morning during Pastor Jim's sabbatical, Uh, and I think we have a, a great word from God this morning. Now, it was several months ago that Pastor Jim was preparing for this, and he sent out this email to all the the teaching staff here at the church saying, hey, let me know what dates you're going to be around. Let me know when it would be good for for you to take a turn to preach. Uh, And evidently, I was the last one to respond to that email. Uh, I knew that I was the last one to respond when I got the email back, and I was the only one that had two books assigned to me. So I figured that was just punishment for being slow in responding. Uh, To be fair, he, he did give me an out. He said, you know, you can pick one of the the prophets to do, or you can do them both. Uh, But in my mind, I thought, man, these guys have suffered enough being hung with that label of minor prophets so long. I had to find a way to get both of them in here. So I started doing some reading, started doing some studying, and the, the Lord started to show me some ways that we could learn from both of those prophets together, uh, studying them at the same time. And then the thought occurred to me, you know, I think we may have left another one out. And so I went back to the email, looked through it, and sure enough, Pastor Jim says, we're going to cover 11 of the 12 minor prophets in our series. And I just thought to myself, I've already started this no prophet left behind thing. I, I, I think I need to read up this other guy and see what God has to say in there. So poor Obadiah, poor Obadiah got left out of the original preaching list I go there, and sure enough, it's the smallest book in the Old Testament. It's just a single chapter. You can see why he ended up being the guy who had to sit the bench. But as I read it, I started to see uh, a pattern emerging in the three books, uh, the two that I was assigned and the one that I just kind of took upon myself. So I decided let's look at it together. Let's open God's word. Let's see what God says through these three prophets who preach three messages to three completely different nations. And so... We have the privilege this morning of probably hearing the only sermon ever written to cover the books of Obadiah, Nahum, and Zephaniah together. So we got three books and probably thousands of years of history to cover, so we better dive right in. Let's take a look at these scriptures in their context. So if you're not familiar with God's history, of the history of God's people through the Old Testament, I'm going to take just a brief moment and catch you up so we're all on the same page. So listen quickly here. So God calls Abraham. Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob stole the birthright and the blessing from his brother Esau. He goes on to have 12 sons. One of those is Joseph. Joseph ends up down in Egypt. The family joins him down in Egypt. The family grows in Egypt. They become slaves. Then God calls Moses to go and bring the people out of slavery to lead them to the promised land. They make it there. They form a nation. They say, God, we want a king. God says, okay, I'll give you a king. That choice leads eventually to a divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. Then the northern kingdom of Israel gets taken captive by Assyria in 722 BC because of their disobedience to God. Later on, Judah becomes taken captive to Babylon and their exiles there in 586 BC also as a result of disobedience. Everybody got that? All right. So we're all caught up. We're all on the same page. I think we're ready to begin our sermon today. Before we take a look at our text, let's go to our Lord in prayer this morning. Father, We thank you for the gift of gathering and worship this morning. Father, I pray that your word to these nations would be a word to us today, that your spirit would teach us and bring us understanding, that you would search hearts and change lives through your message given to these prophets. 
Father, thank you for your word. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. So let's put each of these books kind of in their own context. So we, we take a look at these three. First, we'll take a look at Nahum. Nahum was a prophet who delivered a judgment oracle against the empire of Assyria somewhere around 650 B.C. If you remember Pastor Jim's last series before he left, he was preaching through the book of Jonah. Jonah also had this message for Assyria and for their capital city of Nineveh. And if we think of that series through Jonah and how he responded to God's call, we can look at the prophet Nahum as delivering the message that Jonah had wanted to, to deliver. This was the message he hoped God was sending to them because it was a message that God had declared his final judgment, that Assyria would be no more. The judgment had been passed and their fate had been sealed because of their atrocities, their brutality, their evil deeds, and the way they treated God's chosen people. You'll remember Jonah's cry against God in Jonah chapter four, verse two, when he says, he knew that the Lord was a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now this was a reference to Exodus chapter 34, where God himself declares that he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Now we fast forward to the book of Nahum. And in Nahum chapter one, verse three, this prophet again refers to this passage from Exodus. He says that the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Now notice in these two references that each has a bit of an omission, right? First of all, when we look at Jonah, he leaves out this key phrase that God will by no means clear the guilty. But then when we look at Nahum, Nahum leaves out any message concerning forgiveness. And it's in this that we see this tension that exists between God's mercy and God's justice. God sent Jonah with a message that would lead to repentance. But he sent Nahum with a message only of judgment. See, God had offered a time for repentance already. That time was gone. And we never should count God's slowness to anger as a weakness on his part. He restrains his judgment for a time out of his mercy, but his justice will still be done. So when we take them together, the books of Jonah and Nahum, they can give us a fuller view of God and how he deals with evil. Now let's look at Zephaniah. Zephaniah was a descendant of King Hezekiah, he was a prophet who spoke against the nation of Judah before it fell to the Babylonians. Now his oracle was likely written somewhere around 625 BC, around the time of King Josiah and the reforms that he introduced. They had discovered the book of the law in the temple and so they began to actually do what was written in it. And King Josiah was a king that, that followed a wicked and evil king. And so he was attempting to turn the people around. The people had suffered from terrible leadership, both from the, the evil king and from corrupt religious leaders when Josiah took the throne at a young age. So Zephaniah's prophecy, no doubt, comes during this period. What we don't know is, is whether his message was a catalyst for some of these reforms or whether it was just evidence that the outward reforms that were being practiced by the people had failed to actually change their hearts. Though people would resume worshiping God, they were slow to get rid of all the other objects of worship that they had come to treasure in their years of idolatrous living. 
Even though their brothers in the northern kingdom had fallen to Assyria in 722 BC, those in the southern kingdom, they felt somehow that they were immune from this type of judgment, that they would be spared the fate of their brothers, that somehow maybe they could strike deals with their adversaries and avoid defeat. But Zephaniah warned the people that God would in fact judge the Assyrians for their evil, but he would also judge Judah for its evil as well. All nations would be judged by a righteous God in the day of the Lord. Finally, Obadiah proclaims judgment on a different group of people, the Edomites. Now recall I mentioned that that Jacob uh, stole the birthright and the blessing from his brother Esau. Jacob would eventually become known as Israel. His descendants would be the nation of Israel. However, Esau would also go on to have descendants in a family that would be called the nation of Edom. And just as the relationship between these two brothers was, was rocky, to say the least, so too was the relationship between these two nations, Israel and Edom. In fact, when Israel was being brought out of slavery, out of Egypt, and Moses was leading them toward the promised land, Edom refused to give them safe passage, even threatening them with a show of force. And now here in Obadiah, they're judged for having helped the enemies of Israel to defeat them. And not only that, but they were eager to see their destruction For they took over the land and the cities that Israel had once inhabited once they fell. So you you may be thinking at this point, man, this is a a fantastic history lesson. I'm glad we've gone through it. But what in the world do we do with these three different judgments put together? How do we combine these into a sermon that's going to make any sense to where I'm at in my life right now? That's a fair point, but I believe that, that I found in studying God's word, sometimes when you look at the way things relate together in different parts of Scripture, You learn something greater than any one part. So in these elements that that join different parts of scripture, I think we find two essential truths that get communicated. First, even though these articles were specifically against these nations, they were very specific to the nations they were calling out, each of the books makes it clear that God would judge all nations. And then second, despite the judgment that must come, There would remain hope for all nations and a remnant of God's people. These two truths permeate the message of each of these prophets. Nahum prophesied a day when judgment would come to the world and all who dwell in it. But he also told of good news and of peace that would come to God's people. Obadiah prophesied that the day of the Lord was near for all nations. But he makes it clear that among the people there would be a way of escape. And then Zephaniah used the most vivid imagery in both his descriptions of judgment and of hope when he said that God's burning anger would consume the earth and yet the Lord would be a refuge for a remnant who would rejoice and sing aloud. So what is it about these groups that brought such judgment and wrath from a just God? I believe that we can boil all of this down simply to a worship problem. So that's what I've titled our sermon for today, A Worship Problem. In each case, there are problems with the object, manner, and completeness of their worship. So let's look at four ways together in which their worship led to judgment, and hopefully, then how can we avoid the same worship problem within ourselves? First thing we must understand to avoid this judgment is that self-worship must become God-centered worship. Self-worship must become God-centered worship. In the case of Nahum's oracle against Assyria, we only have to look at how the Assyrians actually viewed themselves. They were the dominant world empire of the time. They had conquered all the lands around them. They'd even gone all the way down to Egypt and defeated a nation that had been in existence for centuries. 
an Assyrian king from just a generation or two before Nahum's prophecy, he made this boast, I am powerful, I am all powerful, I am without equal among all kings. As it reached its peak, though, the empire began to crumble because of a fight between the sons of a succeeding king. That led to an invasion from the Persians and the Medes and the Babylonians and others. It was one of the empire's strengths when they conquered a people, they would conquer them completely. And so we look at at one example in the nation of Elam. They conquer this nation, they take everyone out of all the cities. This gives them a great sense of pride that they were able to conquer so fully, but it also helped lead to their downfall because you see, the Persians are the ones that moved into those cities once Elam was gone. And that's one of the very nations that would rise up against them and take them out. Historians have been able to discover a lot about their military might, about the power they showed because the Assyrian kings were so proud of their conquest, they had inscriptions everywhere about what they had done to the people that they conquered. Their power led to pride and their pride led to destruction. Scripture also attests to this problem of self-worship in the Assyrians. We can look at the prophet Isaiah And he wrote this, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. Twice in Nahum, God tells the nation of Assyria, behold, I am against you. Now what could possibly be worse than the God of the universe declaring that he is your sworn enemy? Most of Nahum's prophecy is kind of like God taunting Assyria before he destroys them. It's a very bleak picture that he paints. He talks about the invading armies coming to them, but the punishment was just for their refusal to acknowledge him as God and put their faith in him instead of in themselves. So the empire, nation, and king that had ruled through brutality and fear would soon receive what is due. If we look at Nahum 3, 19, he actually says that all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. He refers to how everyone who hears about the fall of Assyria will rejoice. Such was their brutality against the nations. But Assyria was not the only nation that would have this problem of self-worship. Obadiah as well gives us the word of the Lord to the Edomites. And he says in verses 3 and 4, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? See, the Edomites, they lived in a mountainous region. There were cliffs all around, and that's where they made their dwellings. They would, they would carve into caves or carve homes into the sides of the cliffs, and that would give them this protection from invading armies. But soon, they began to put their trust in where they lived, in the fortresses that they had built. They fell into this trap. They trusted in their location to save them. They became proud. And even the prophet Ezekiel prophesied God's judgment against them. He wrote, And you magnified yourselves against me with your mouth and multiplied your words against me. I heard it. See, our pride before the Lord doesn't go unnoticed. Judgment will come to those who exalt themselves rather than the Lord. But even those who have witnessed the salvation of the Lord can fall into this trap of self-worship. At several points in their history, the nation of Israel struggled with this kind of pride. It was ironic though, a lot of their pride stemmed from the fact that they were God's chosen people. They felt that somehow now that they had this privileged status, their behavior no longer mattered quite as much because they were God's chosen people. They could never be defeated. What may have begun as faith in God to deliver them, it became pride which blinded them to God's sovereignty. 
And that's why in the book of Zephaniah, he exhorts them to seek after the Lord. In Zephaniah chapter two, verse three, he says this. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Now, to seek something is to pursue it persistently until you've obtained it. It requires focus and a continuous effort. And while we may not want to compare ourselves to these ancient peoples and the the brutality and the evil that they had as they sought after power, wealth, and security instead of the Lord, are we not like them? Are we not just like them? When we get that taste of success, how quick are we to begin to trust in our own power instead of the power of the Lord? You see, self-worship can be a subtle thing. We don't see it as a big deal, so we just kind of let it sit there. We let it grow within us. We continue in it until eventually we've taken all the faith that we had in God and we've begun to place it in ourselves. And in this process, I think we see another problem with our worship. It's divided. That leads us to our second point. Divided worship must become exclusive worship. To worship something means to serve it. And Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount that we cannot serve two masters. God himself made this very clear. When he brought the people out of Egypt, he made it clear that he was a jealous God. He would never tolerate being just one of many gods. He was the only God. In fact, if we look at the book of Exodus, chapter 20, this is how he sets up the Ten Commandments. Starting in verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Clearly one of the distinctive features of the Jews in this ancient time was their practice of monotheism. They served only one God. Now this stood in stark contrast to many of their neighbors who served a pantheon of gods who may have represented everything from beauty to war to the harvest. But God is one. There's no other. We all know that idols are worthless, but God's people were continually drawn to worship them because they saw it all around them. It's something the Lord calls them out on right at the beginning of Zephaniah's prophecy. In chapter one, verse five, he says, he will judge his people and he includes those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. Now Milcom, who in in other places in scripture you may see as Molech, he was an Ammonite deity. Part of the worship of Milcom involved sacrificing children by fire. So you can see how the Lord's wrath would be kindled against a people who would swear by his name, but then practice such evil deeds. It should have been obvious, the contradiction to the people. Nobody could possibly know the laws of the Lord and read them and believe that this kind of practice was okay, yet they did it. That's what divided worship does. As soon as we let idols creep into our lives, our worship is diverted from the truth, and we begin to slide towards those things that are an abomination to God. Now, I don't suspect anyone listening to my voice today has a problem with graven images or or things carved out of wood or metals that they bow down and they worship to, but make no mistake, every one of us has idols. 
in his book, Gospel Treason, Brad Bigney, defines an idol as anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. So this takes it beyond some sort of cultic ritual, puts it in the real world, lets us know that anything can be an idol. And as ugly as some of those things are, there's others that seem good until we begin to elevate them to the place that only God deserves. We think about kids, family, relationships, careers. All of those things can become idols just as easily as drugs or alcohol or lust or ego. Even the church itself can become an idol to us if we elevate it to the position that only God deserves. Beware the subtle infiltration of idols. Because as your worship is divided, it ceases to become true worship. Now the next point may not be so obvious, but I think it's important nonetheless. I think in the words that we read today, we, we see that individualized worship must become gathered worship. Now there's an easy to miss point through all this about worshiping in, in community. Just before God calls the people out, for swearing by both his name and Milcom, he includes a group and he says this about them. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heavens. Now it may, might make little sense to us today. It, it, it seems you know, far-fetched and weird, but at the time there was, there was a, a prevailing form of worship where people would go up, literally go up on their rooftops and worship the celestial bodies that they saw. It was a form of nature worship that, that wasn't unique to them but it showed that not only was this a form of divided worship, it was reinforced by the fact that it was practiced privately. People had begun to retreat to their own private form of worship and abandoned the worship that was enjoyed by the community. This private worship led people even further astray, allowed them to continue down this path of error with no helpful correction from others. Gathered worship helps prevent error and it promotes faithfulness. It benefits both the individual and the community. And so when God calls on his people to repent in chapter two of Zephaniah, he instructs them this way. He says, gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. See, in order for them to even realize their error and thus be ashamed of it, they needed to come back together. This is further magnified in what the Lord promises them once the judgment passes. In chapter three, verse nine of Zephaniah, he says this, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. God's goal includes the unification of his people that happens in community. While this is only possible for those who know God and are in him, note that God's desire for this gathered worship, it extended even to those people of Edom that we talked about before. Even though there was this enmity between Edom and Israel, God had warned his people back in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse seven. He said, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. Now in this passage, he's not just talking about their individual interactions that they might have with Edomites or the thoughts that they might have concerning them. Within the context of this passage, he was saying they should be allowed into the assembly. They shouldn't be prevented from worshiping God because they were part of this different nation. See, Edom was not the covenant people of God, but God recognized their relationship to Israel and he desired them to join with their brothers in worship. Now, the people of Edom, they generally rejected this form of inclusion and that's eventually what would lead to their destruction and the judgment prophesied by Obadiah. 
Instead of joining with their brothers as they should have, they fought against them. And they took advantage of them when God punished Israel for its sin. So how does this apply today? God still desires gathered worship. See, personal worship is important. We should, in private, read our Bible. We should, in private, pray and experience personal times of worship. But if you do that exclusively, neglecting the gathered worship with other believers, that contradicts the consistent teaching of Scripture and the historical practice of the church. Worshiping together demonstrates our unity in Christ and oneness as part of his body. And that's why later in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, we're encouraged this way. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Worshiping together gives glory to God and strength to each other to accomplish God's will. But if we persist in divided or individualized worship, we risk abandoning worship altogether. That's what brings us to our fourth point. Abandoned worship must become consistent worship. Returning back to the first chapter of Zephaniah, God says he will judge those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Later, he speaks of Jerusalem in chapter 3, verse 2, when he says, She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not not draw near to her God. One specific example of this we can see in 2 Chronicles 33. Judah had the evil king I mentioned before. His name was Manasseh. And in verses 9 and 10 of this account, we read that Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Listen to the language that he uses in each of these verses. They turned back from following. They don't seek. They don't listen. They don't accept correction. They don't trust. They don't draw near. And finally... Even when the Lord does speak, they don't even pay attention. They abandoned worshiping God. And while sometimes this can be the result of some sort of hostility to God with regard to circumstance or some perceived injustice, more often it's simply a matter of neglect that leads to indifference. In chapter 1, verse 12 of Zephaniah, God says this, I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts the Lord will not do good nor will he do ill. The people had become so complacent that they no longer believed that the Lord acted at all, good or bad. So what may have begun as this drift away from true worship, it's brought them to a place where they can't even recognize who God is. The scariest part of all that is that you could be sitting right here, right now, and have abandoned worship. Sure, you may continue to attend church services. You might be involved in church programs. But in your heart, you become complacent. You become indifferent toward a God that you no longer feel is active in you and around you. Jesus experienced this in much of his ministry here on earth. He dealt with people who were outwardly religious but not worshiping God. He said of them in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. As a people, they'd stopped seeking the Lord. They'd stopped trusting him, 
And instead, they started to find comfort in their idols. They had abandoned worship. What's interesting about Jesus' words here is where they originally came from. He was quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And in that context, the Lord's telling his people that their abandoned worship was the reason that Assyria would come to invade them and conquer them. Judah would survive this this round of judgment, but they were still unable to, to escape the devastation of the Babylonians after that. Their worship problems persisted despite repeated warnings. They would not truly seek the Lord. So this morning, what does your worship look like? How is it? Have you seen yourself in any of these groups that we've talked about? Perhaps your worship is a divided worship. You once trusted God completely, but you've let some things creep in over time, taking you away from the true worship of God. Those idols have taken the place that only God should have. You trust in other things. You serve other things. Your attention is placed on other things. Now is the time to refocus and make God the sole object of your worship, trusting him in everything. Or maybe your worship has become individualized. Please don't reject the community because it's imperfect. Because newsflash, you are too. We all gather together as an imperfect people to worship a perfect God. Some people retreat to this personal form of worship. Something as simple as the falling out with someone in the church. Or maybe they were wounded by something that happened in the church. Maybe they had an experience at a church that turned them off from gathered worship altogether. But neglecting to worship with the gathered body of Christ, it's completely at odds with all patterns and commands that we find in scripture about worship. Gathered worship is important. Or have you abandoned worship altogether? Like I said, you could be sitting here this morning, but your worship's become abandoned. It's grown grown so cold. You might go through the motions, you might even embrace the ritual of coming every week, sitting under the teaching of the, the word of the Lord, but you've abandoned your worship. It's time to repattern your life. It's time to refocus it. Time to dedicate it to worshiping God in all that you do. Finally, considering our first point today, are you consumed with self-worship? Have you been seeking the best for your life, all the while ignoring the only one who knows exactly what you need? Come to him today. Making yourself the object of your worship can only lead to disaster, but putting your faith in the only one that can save will ensure that you can endure the coming judgment. Now today we're going to give you an opportunity to respond in just a moment, but I want to leave you not just with these oracles of judgment, but with the message of hope that lies within them. The problem of idols is not unique to the Old Testament. We flip over to the pages of the New Testament and the Apostle John in his first letter, he ends it this way. In 1 John 5, 20 through 21, he says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Then he tags the letter with this simple phrase. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The two are woven together. The hope that we have in God only comes when we can keep ourselves from idols. 
Now, I know that going through these minor prophets, it can be a little bit daunting and maybe even a bit depressing as we read some of these pages, but there is a purpose. There's an underlying purpose there. Paul knew this. Paul knew the words of the Old Testament, and when he was writing to the people at Corinth, he told them to identify this same purpose. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says this, Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And he goes on to say, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Again, the message of hope is woven in with this warning. Finally, even with the incredibly difficult prophecy that we read in the book of Zephaniah, judgment, destruction, utter devastation, essentially the undoing of creation, within that God placed one of the most beautiful promises. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, we read, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's the beautiful picture of our God. Yes, a God of justice. Yes, a God of wrath where judgment must come. But we read his heart here in Zephaniah. He is in our midst. He is a mighty one who will save. We can be delivered from that judgment. The same God who judges is a mighty one who will save. So seek the Lord today. Call on him. Give him the worship that he is due. This is the word of God. And that all God's people say.